Welcome to The Antique Show. We talk antiques, collectibles and art and all the news and events from Australia and around the globe. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Oh, that's the voiceover guy. I swear he was born with gold dust on his vocal cords with a voice like that. And welcome to episode seven of The Antique Show. As he said, my name is Jason Harris and I am so so happy to be here today. Firstly, a big happy Father's Day to all those fathers out there. Of course, if you're listening on the Sunday, if you're listening sometime in the future, I hope you had a great Father's Day. And for everyone else, please enjoy your day. What a fabulous day it is out there. Firstly, welcome to the man behind the glass, Mark, our producer extraordinaire, who puts this show together down at the Antique Show studios of the Antique Education Headquarters at Grange. He joins me in studio every week. Now, no episode last week. I was in Bangkok. I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs' Organisation. I'm actually a board member. It's an international group, about 15,000 people. We have regional meetings occasionally, and the meeting last week was held in Bangkok. So I was very fortunate to be able to go over there. Number one, because it was 32 degrees most days. Secondly, I am impressed with Bangkok. 20 million people. The city is very, very clean, but nighttime does it come alive. And I'm not talking about the bars and the go-go whatevers. I'm talking about the street food. We went down to Chinatown one night and we walked out onto the street and it is lit up, neon lights, flashing lights. There are people everywhere. They even put a rope down either side of the street so that you can walk slightly out onto the street in front of the food vendors. And there would have had to have been probably 50 or 60 food vendors all doing one or two things. And one of those, and this is what I couldn't believe, but one of those actually has a Michelin star. That's right, a Michelin star as a street food vendor. I'm not quite sure what she saw. It might be Pad Thai or something. Been on uh, many TV shows. We also saw another one where they were just serving char-grilled octopus and char-grilled squid. And the lineup would have been about 40 metres long. It doesn't really happen very often uh, anywhere else in the world, but it's quite amazing, the street food. Anyway, we're not here to talk about street food. We're not here to talk about weather, but we are here to talk about auctions, antiques, art, and collectibles. Now, do you remember those black lady lambs? Very brightly coloured, almost gaudy, maybe got um, pearl earrings, brightly coloured face paint. They're called Barsany lamps. So we're going to discover more about these. Now, if you also remember and you listen back to episode three, we started talking about Japanese porcelain. Now, it's a very, very big subject. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper, <clears throat> excuse me, into Japanese porcelain. And we're going to talk about my favourite style of pottery, Satsuma. We're also going to look at weird stuff people collect, including love dolls. Yes, you heard me correct. And your imagination can go wild. Love dolls. And that's not, surprisingly, the weirdest thing that people collect. And finally, we look at the auction results from last week's showcase sale. Now, I received an email earlier this week, and someone asked me, how did I get into auctions? Now, very, very short story. I wasn't necessarily the brightest student, so I left uh, at the end of year 12 not doing that well, which probably didn't surprise my parents. And I thought I'd need to go out and get a job, earn some money uh, so I can do all sorts of things that I enjoy doing. And I got two job offers on one day. Now, I was training or studying to be an accountant. 
So the first job offer was working as a clerk at a retirement home. That would have been the most obvious choice to make. But no, my second job offer was working at an auction room called Theodore Bruce, a well-known local auction room. It certainly was in the 80s and 90s. And they were offering me $3,000 more a year to work there. And I had no idea about auctions, but I thought, I'll, I'll take the money. I can always go back to being an auctioneer, an accountant or a clerk. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Never been to an auction before. None of my family members have been at an auction or into antiques. So I thought I'd give it a shot. And I remember my very first auction that I attended. I was working there. It was a smoke and water damaged auction we did on on a Saturday. There were probably three to 400 people there. The auction he got up on the stand, he started. And as soon as I saw what an auction was about, I fell in love with it. It was an awesome place, so dynamic. And I haven't regretted it since, and just by chance got into an industry that I fell in love with. So that is my very brief story of how I got into the auction industry. But now, to the news. And in local news this week, let's firstly talk about art. And a local art sale at Sotheby's, two French scenes by much-travelled husband and wife artist Ethel Carrick and Emmanuel Phillips Fox were highlights at the sale held in Sydney on August the 27th. Now, a little bit of history, the couple moved to Paris for several years where they were both influenced by contemporary art movement before going back to Australia. With an estimate of 500 to 700,000 the sale, Emmanuel's oil on canvas was painted in 1889 on one of his first tours of rural France and shows an impressionistic influenced landscape in Brittany. Now, unfortunately, it did pass through unsold. But in big news from that sale, William Dobell's The Dead Landlord, and it's a really bizarre painting. You've got to go and look at it online. Just Google William Dobell, The Dead Landlord, painted in 1936, sold for a record price for the artist, including buyer's premium, of $1,220,000. And in other results of the $12 million sale, included Arthur Streeton's Cairo that sold for $146,000 and his other work St Mary's selling for 353 against a lower estimate of 80 to 220,000. Now you might remember in last episode of Discover we talked about Frederick McCubbin and just by chance one of his earliest works called The Old Politician came up for sale and it sold for an eye-watering $585,000 against a very conservative estimate of eighty to 120000 Now, continuing on in art stories, works of Belfast-born artist Paul Henry appear frequently in Irish and UK sales room, but it's far more unusual for paintings by this painter to emerge in Australia. Turf Stacks in Camera, a signed oil on canvas, is one of 10 pictures from the Strawn family, which collect or whose collection is uh, consigned for a fine art auction in September the 3rd. The stark and atmospheric landscape was believed to have been acquired by James Ford Strawn III, who thought it to be a little landscape dad bought on his travels. And it's estimated between 60 and 80,000. So look forward to seeing how that goes. Now on to international news and let's open up with books. Books about Captain Cook, an unexceptional, that's exactly what it reads, an unexceptional 1737 English language edition of Horace's Odes, Satires and Epistles, lacking a portrait and three text pages, sold for £50,000 in a Bonham sale late June. 
Now, this was one of the books that William Perry, surgeon's mate and then later surgeon on the Endeavour, took with him on Captain James Cook's first circumnavigation of the globe between 1768 and 1771. And we believe that it sold for the substantial amount because of the front end paper notes, which it details the Endeavour's crew and other information about Cook's first voyage to Australia and the Pacific. Now let's talk toys, dinky toys, pre-war to be exact. Two rare pre-war dinky toys boxed were offered for sale by toy specialist m and Auctions in Lincolnshire on behalf of the family who owned them since new in the mid-1930s. Prices have undoubtedly softened for some of the early dinky toys, but the holy grail of dinky collecting remains these 1930s number 28 delivery van advertising commercial brand names. Each was considered an exceptional example with very minor fatigue crazing and minimal paint loss, which is for collectors of dinky toys the penultimate of things. They sold for £10,200. That's right, £10,200. Quite an amazing price. Let's talk about bronzes. Now, this story is quite amazing. This is the power of auctions. So a bronze around about 50 centimetres high, which was catalogued as the abduction of the Sabine, possibly 18th century or earlier, uh, and they listed possibly by a certain artist, and it was listed for 300 to 500 pounds. However, it sold for £100,000 as five phone buyers and online buyers fought it out. It was actually believed to be by either Ferdinando Tacca or Jean Francesco Sussini. Anyway, amazing to see that type of, uh, that type of bronze turn around from three to 500 to sell for over £100,000. Now, if you love horology, that's timepieces, everyone, horology. Along the most, or among the most influential figures in the 18th, century French clock making was the Somerset-born Henry Sully. Now clocks bearing his name are rare on the open market, but one did surface in Norfolk last month. The Regency gilt bronze Cartel d'Alcove, which is a style of clock, came for sale from a local collector with an estimate of 4,000 to 5,000 pounds. Beautiful little matted gilt dial with a subsidiary second and a sunken demi-lune name plaque. Now this, because of the rarity of Sully's works, sold for £17,000. All right, let's go back to books. A quarto volume bearing the manuscript title The Uniform of the Several Regiments of the Foot in His Majesty's Service sold for double the estimate at Christie's last week. Now it doesn't sound very exciting, but this beautiful finely bound volume contained over 70 illustrations of uniforms and they're executed in ink and wash. What was amazing, the original one, and that they only believe that two of these ever existed. The last one seen at auction was in 1901 and sold for £55. If you think about it, back in 1901, what £55 was actually worth. Anyway, this one sold for $60,000 on June the 12th. Now, finally, we go to Risque in Russia. That would be the name of a song, couldn't it? Risque in Russia. Although catalogued as continental, a mid-19th century porcelain figure of a seated semi-nude ballet dancer, what were they thinking? With impressed marks for the factory established by the English entrepreneur Francis Gardner uh, near Moscow in 1766. Now, Gardner's best known for his series of idolised old Russian characters, typically peasants, vendors, tradespeople and the like, who lived in the empire. However, this 22-centimetre figure was on a Rococo base, 
and it was from a series of more unusual and more risque subjects made between 1840s and 1850s. It was listed at 80 to 150 euros, this is in Kilkenny and Ireland, and eventually sold after attracting interest from Russian and UK buyers for 3,200 euros. There we are, risque in Russia, and that is the news. Word of the week. Bonheur du jour. B-O-N-H-E-U-R-D-E-J-O-U-R. Now in French, it actually means daytime delight. But in the terms of antiques, it is a small lady's writing desk. Now it's fitted with a superstructure along the back of the desk surface and it sits on slender legs joined by a decorative stretcher that acts as a shelf. This is very, very popular in the 18th century. Bonheur du jour. I invite you to visit Learn Antiques where you can read, watch, learn and grow. www.learnantiques.com.au There's articles, news, video and podcasts and it's all for free at Learn Antiques. www.learnantiques.com.au Discover to find unexpectedly. Some people call them kitsch, but do you remember those black lamps or vases, typically in the shape of a ballerina or maybe the bust of a a girl with a, a lamp behind it, and they were typically black with very bright highlighted colors, maybe pearl drop earrings, and they would have had red and white ribbon shades or even yellow and black ribbon shades. They were called Barsney lamps. And I really want to talk about Barsley lamps because it's something that has been selling very, very well lately. And yet very few people know the history of the Barsney lamps. So let's go deep into Barsney. They were made by, oddly enough, a Hungarian immigrant called George Barsney and his wife, June. June actually made all these shades by hand, which is quite amazing. Now, the Barsney was very popular between 1950s and 1970s, especially in the 50s when exotic black figures became strangely popular. Now, many other companies made figures like this, including Moss, Bosons. Now, Bosons made the ugly heads. That's what I call them anyway, the ugly heads. And another Sydney-based company called Kalmar. However, unfortunately, in the 70s, times changed and love fell out for Barsney lamps, maybe the black exotic figures, and they ceased around about the mid-70s, all production of Barsney. It was a real shame. Now, fast forward to the current day, we've seen a resurgence over the last five to eight years in Barsney lamps, and many selling between four and $600 at auction. Now, let's go back to George and June. They set up a small workshop in Bankstown in New South Wales and they worked together to produce and paint many different styles of the lamps, figures, candlesticks and bookends. Now they also produced under Silver Cloud and Venice brands, but these are rarely seen on the market. In fact, probably in 30 years, I don't think I've seen either brand Silver Cloud or Venice come up, but there are a few rare examples out there. Going back to the lamps though, They're very distinctive. If you've never seen one before, once you see one, you'll start recognising them everywhere. Just a very distinct black, brightly coloured highlights. And there was a great partnership between the husband and wife. And as I said earlier, June made many of the original 
shades. Now here's a spoiler alert. Unfortunately, there are many reproductions hitting the market. And for the unwary, it can be a real trap where unscrupulous, maybe retailers, dealers, people on eBay are passing them off as originals. However, you do put them side by side, you can see the difference between the two. The paint's wrong, the styling's slightly wrong, the colors are definitely wrong, but also the overall touch and feel is just not quite right. There is a simple marking system that they used, and on the base, you'll find a combination, typically of a title, then there'll be a series of letters and a number. So for example, they use H for head, and L for lamp, VL for a vase lamp, and FL for a figural lamp. Absolute genius. Then it was followed by a letter, and that was to indicate what mold number it was. So for example, FL39 is a figural lamp number 39, and that is for the sitting black lady. As I said, once you see a reproduction and original side by side, the difference is like night and day. The moulding is very different and the overall feel is not right. Now we talk about feel quite often within the antique show. It's something that it only comes with experience. And that's why I always suggest go out to as many antique shops or as many auctions as you can and touch and feel, as long as the dealer in the auction room is happy, touch and feel as much as you can. By that, you actually then start to understand what I mean by about the feel. It's something that is very instinctive. Now, you also might find Barsony lamps with original red stickers or even marked that they were made in England, but they never were. They're always made in a small factory in Bankstown. Now, the Barsonies have left unwittingly an enduring collector, which I feel will continue to be highly prized in decades to come. Now, if you're still not sure what I'm talking about, ask Mr. Google. It's Barsony, B-A-R-S-O-N-Y. So hats off to George and June Barsony for their part in moulding the retro collectible market. Ready, go! Okay, it's wacko time. And weird stuff people collect. Now, I mean that nicely. I don't mean they're wackos. I just mean collectors are special type of people. They are. For someone to dedicate you know, a greater part of their life, both in time and financially, to collecting one type of thing, you have to be a special type of person. You have to be highly invested in it. I don't mean financially invested, but you have to be highly invested. You obviously, if you're with a partner, they have to be extremely understanding. So we're going to look at, following on from last week's episode, the list of things that people collect. And it constantly surprises me what people actually collect. Dresses. The world's biggest dress collection apparently belongs to Paul Brockman a German-born contractor from California, and his collection is over 55,000 dresses that he's bought for his wife, Margot. 55,000 dresses. Apparently, David Morgan owns the largest collection of traffic cones with 137 unique items. And nails, not fingernails, not toenails, but metal nails. A 78-year-old Richard Jones shows off his collection of 3,000 nails which he gathered from different countries over the last 50 years. There's the type of dedication a collector can show. Winnie the Pooh. Dev, Dev, Deb Hoffman's Winnie the Pooh and his friends. Collection consists just 
over 10,000 items of Winnie the Pooh. And Barbie doll. Bettina Dorfman owns Barbie dolls, reportedly worth around about 150,000, but she has 6,025 Barbies. Now, we do know from experience that some of the early Barbies are worth some really considerable money. And Adrian taught me a trick from Scammels that you actually need to take the head off and look at the neck. And there's a number apparently on the neck or underneath the back of the head that shows you whether something is rare or not. Water bottle labels. And this one I didn't believe when I first read it, but apparently an Italian Lorenzo Pessini owns 8,650 different water bottle labels from 185 countries and 1,683 springs. I didn't even know that was a collectible. Apparently it is. Now this one's quite surprising. Scratch cards. You know the lottery cards? You scratch off the, the surface to reveal a win or not. Victoria Taylor has potentially or is potentially sitting on a gold mine. Now, this is unusual because he has a very large collection of scratch cards. And bizarrely enough, when he started in 1995, Victor has not scratched a single one of those. So it could be sitting on a million dollars there, Victor. Scratch away, I say some. Autographs. This one's quite unusual. Autographs aren't an unusual collectible, all right? People, and I remember as a kid, going down to the cricket and getting you know, Dennis Lilly and David Hooks's autographs when I'm watching the cricket. But apparently, Paul Schmelzer, Paul Schmelzer, collects autographs from famous people, artists, politicians, writers, and movie stars, but not their autographs. Rather, he asks them to sign and write his own name. So he has, so you get that? So he, they actually get, he actually gets a star to sign his own name. So the star will sign Paul Schmelzer. Anyway, apparently he's got over 70 autographs, including one by Dan Castaneda, uh, who is the voice behind Homer Simpson. And finally, this was in the opening, and it's not a joke, a wacky couple, Bob and Liz Gibbons, collect love dolls. They've got 240 of them. Could you imagine dinner party at their place? Now, according to the couple, they like to dress the dolls up and even take them on shopping trips. Love dolls, 240 of them. Obviously don't have a radio or a TV, Bob and Lizzie Gibbons. All right, that is it for weird stuff. We collect uh, crazy stuff. We're going to continue this until we exhaust the lists and then we'll get deep into some prices at further episodes. Scammels are one of Australia's largest and most dynamic auction rooms, selling over 55,000 lots every year. Now, yesterday we held the great collector's auction of man cave collectibles, motorcycles, open wheel race cars, oil bottles, rare enamel signs, and collectibles. And I look forward to next week to presenting the results. But this week we've launched catalogues for our weekly estate sale. That's on Monday, the 2nd of September. And our online jewellery auction concludes Monday evening, the 2nd of September. We're also calling for final entries for our forthcoming fine and contemporary art auctions and our mid-century sale. And all of these catalogues and auctions can be found online at scammels.com.au. Remember, two M's and two L's in Scammels. And Scammels also offer a free no-obligation appraisal of art, antiques, silver or jewellery. So give our office a call on 83620404 or contact us online at scammels.com.au. Scammels, another great find. A few episodes ago, I started talking about Japanese porcelain. 
This is a huge subject, and I'd said this at the very start when I think it was episode three, had a talk about it. I gave you an overview of the Japanese porcelain, and there's many, many different types. So for those who didn't listen to that episode, or those who maybe have had a busy life and forgotten, here's a recap. The real influx of Japanese export ware to Europe really happened around 1659 when the Dutch East Indies Company placed an order for 65,000 pieces. And it took the kilns in the Arita province or the Arita area almost two years to fulfill the order. So Arita at the time was the epicenter of Japanese porcelain and was essentially the old Hinzen province. By the beginning of the 19th century, a great deal of styles and manufacturing centers were in place and Japanese porcelain exports expanded hugely, but the quality also declined as Japan opened to trade in the second half of the century. Now in that episode, we also talked about Satsuma, Arita, Katani and Amari. But this week, I want to talk about my personal favorite. So please indulge me. I want to talk about Satsuma. Now it's certainly not the rarest or even the most expensive, but in my opinion, it's one of the most decorative and certainly one of my very early favorites. It's very tactile to touch. It's brightly colored. It's decorated with mythical scenes of literary classics, heroic legends, and represented nostalgic renderings of life in pre-Meiji Kyoto. Now, one of my favorite pieces that I own, and I bought this a fair while ago now, it's a teapot. It's a hexagonal teapot. It's export wear only, and I'll explain what that means after. The spout of this teapot is a stylized dragon, so the tea actually pours out of the dragon's mouth. Really cool. The hexagonal body is decorated with rakan or arakan, which are the disciples of Buddha. So anyone who's traveled to Japan has had the very fortune of going to see the 500 rakan. Uh, I haven't seen it. I've only seen it on Wikipedia. It looks amazing. Uh, so it's decorated with the disciples of the Buddha. Now, there are also lesser known and more restrained sides of Satsuma potteries. The Shiro Satsuma, for example, is the white glaze design and is only used for the Daimo of the household. So the Daimo is essentially the feudal lord back when they were uh, feudal provinces, essentially, rather than being the combined empire that it is um, now. Or even the black-bodied Kuro Satsuma. There's also the uh, Jakatsu, which is blue, yellow, and black glazed, or the light gray Mishima. There's Satsuma also came in the form of the Chinese-inspired blue and white. But even then, we've only really scratched the surface. Now, one thing to remember, all Satsuma wares were produced mainly for export to the West. So what we really see Satsuma now is all export wear. The local Japanese had no real flavor for the Satsuma or the export wear at all. So geographically, Satsuma is a prefecture and it's located on the southwestern or southern western tip of Japan and was one of the main export shipping areas. Originally, Satsuma was a fife of the Shimazu Daimo, who ruled much of southern Kyushu from their castle in Kagoshima city. Production was located in several cities such as Kyoto, Tokyo, Nagoya, Yokohama and elsewhere, with Kyoto being the main centre of production. Now, during the Imjin War, which is 1592 to 1597, now, oddly enough, that was also called the Ceramic War. Now, here, here's why. The 17th leader of the Satsuma Han captured more than 80 Korean potters as hostages and took them back to Japan. He then made them set up kilns in the Han area. 
Later on, there are five types of kilns available, and they're collectively known as satsuma. Going back to 1867, during the Paris Exhibition or Exposition, that was the first major presentation of Japanese arts and culture to the West, and satsuma wares were highly regarded. The governor of the district knew the political benefits, prestige, and economy of the trade relationship with the West early. So, for instance, in 1868, the rebellion against the shogunate, Britain gave support to the Daimo in order to maintain its connection with Satsuma. And that's, you know, the, the export wear, the power of the export wear. So as a result of the popularity of Satsuma wear in 1867 show, and it's mentioned in the Bowles and Aldsley's Ceramic Art of Japan in 1875, two of the major workshops producing these pieces were supported by some all over Japan. And at that point, Satsuma stopped becoming a geographical marker and started conveying the more aesthetic style. In the mid-1880s, however, we really saw an export slump for many Japanese goods, including Satsuma ware, Japanese pottery and porcelain. And this was mainly as a result of a reaction from collectors and critics to the mass manufacture of Satsuma wares, Japanese pottery and porcelain. And it was devastatingly negative. As a matter of fact, in no other style of pottery or porcelain did the Japanese go to such extent in trying to appeal to the Western tastes. They literally made millions and millions of pieces. So now to the present day, well, almost present day, to the 80s and 90s, we, we saw a resurgence and interest in the Japanese and Chinese porcelain. So just remember, the very top end of the Chinese porcelain, the Japanese porcelain, has, has always been collectible. We're talking about that you know, healthy midsection, which included Satsuma. And some of the Satsuma pieces were highly sought after and highly collectible. Now, it's not the same heady pricing of some of the, say, the Chinese blue and white or the Celadon wares, but Satsuma today remains an affordable and collectible Japanese porcelain. And that's it on the deep dive into Satsuma. Over the next few episodes, we'll go into Katani, Arita, and even Amari. So join us for more on Japanese porcelain. Prepare yourself. Okay, let's go. And this week on What's It Worth, we held a sale last Monday night at Scummel's called the Showcase Sale. It used to be the Antique Sale, but as antiques were out of favour, we renamed it the Showcase Sale. But I'm now thinking after the results and the fabulous results I'm talking about, we might actually rename it the Antique Sale. Why is this? Let's go through some highlights of the 204 lot auction. Lot number 30 was an oak desk. Now what's beautiful about this, it's 19th century, three drawers to the front, beautiful drop handles, leather top, H-shaped stretcher base, that sold for $1,700. There was a Danish bookcase. This is a set of three bookcases, beautifully matched. Early 20th century, but what was really nice is the top of them have a carved frieze or panel. Two, draw, uh, two drawers, two doors either side of the main lot. Three bookcases in all, matching, beautiful piece, $1,900. Lot number 35 was a pair of bronze spelter figural lamps. Absolutely lovely, Belle Epoque classical style. Now they're converted from gas to electricity, so that shows their age. Etched shades, they stood 72.5 centimetres high, sold for $1,600. And a Welsh dresser, this is amazing. It's been such a long time since we've not only offered a Welsh dresser, but also a Welsh, Welsh dresser has got good money at auction. 
sold for $2,200. Circa 1800, so quite an early to mid Georgian piece. Oaken mahogany, that's the, that's the part that makes it quite interesting. It's got a central set of drawers flanked left and right by a door and drawer combination. It stands 207 centimeters high. Really nice secret locking mechanism to the bottom right hand door. And as I said, sold for $2,200. Go the resurgence of Georgian and Victorian furniture. And moving on to another example, this is a Georgian console table, lot number 43, and that sold for $1,000. Love little bow fronter on this one, nice little Sheraton style handles, three drawers to the front on lovely tapering legs. That sold for $1,000. Moving into some Australian cedar. Lovely piece, this one. It's in the Grecian or modern style. It's a writing desk. But what's really nice about this, it's got a um, mechanical full front with a locking style. Very similar one is held by the Art Gallery of South Australia. And that was under bequest of uh, Alice Scott in 1985. This desk sold for $2,100. It is some silver. And this is a set of four pieces. So a coffee pot, a teapot, a sugar bowl, and a milk jug by Rebecca Ems and Edward Barnard of London. 1823-1824, beautiful scallop design. Weighs 2.5 kilos, mind you. Sold for $2,000. And a silver gilt candlesticks, a set of four. And that's what's quite rare to actually get a set of four of these. These are made by Thomas Hannam and John Crouch of London, 1765. They're George III, 26.5 centimetres high, for the four, $5,000. And finally, probably one of my picks of the sale, this is called a Shibayama trinket box. It is absolutely beautiful. Early, uh, circa 1900, which is Japanese Meiji period. It's rectangular with mother of pearl and abalone flower encrusted design on a dark stained rosewood interior. Absolutely stunning piece. Look it up, Shibayama, spelled S-H-I-B-I-Y-A-M-A. That's sold for $2,000. And it was a fantastic sale. As I said, a resurgence in Victorian and Georgian antiques, sterling silver and some artworks there. 204 lot auction, 90% clearance, which is amazing. We normally get in the past around about 60 to 65%, 90% clearance. Now, if you're interested in any of the other results from any of our sales, they can be found online at scammels.com.au. Go to the catalogue link and then search for past auctions. And that concludes another episode of The Antique Show. But before we go, big thank you to our man behind the glass, Mark. He does so much work to help produce this show. But before we go, firstly, thank you for joining us on The Antique Show. We pipped the 300 mark for episode six. Let's get some uh, higher results this week. If you know of anyone who you think would like to listen to The Antique Show, it's Australia's only podcast about antiques, art, auctions and collectibles forward it on to them give them a nudge give them a wink tell them to look up the antique show online it's on apple podcasts it's on spotify i believe it's also can be found on podbean links on learn antiques links on scammer auctions as well also sign up for the newsletter but before we go something that i have realized and reflected on as part of doing this podcast is i suffer from insecurities and i'm no different from lots of other people you know, it, I liken it to 
you see this cool calm on the outside, but inside there, inside there's a turmoil that goes on. The podcast for me has helped me grow by stretching me, making me a little bit more vulnerable. If you think about what we do when we put something out, we're really at the judgment of others. I'm not saying I'm, in, I'm anything special by any means, but it's a way that I have learned to tackle some of my own insecurities. And I liken it to being a balloon. And the only way we can grow is if we put in small breaths of the balloon or if we move forward and face those things that we feel insecure about. If you don't like public speaking, start off small. Just do a couple of people stand up at the next birthday party and make a speech. Just has to be two minutes. You'll be quite surprised not actually that many people judge you. It's the judgment that we put upon ourselves uh, that can be quite crippling. So make those small steps. Be the balloon. Be the big balloon in a year's time. All the small steps, all the small breaths, and you'll be amazed about where you get. Anyway, keep on collecting. Go out to all the auctions you can. Go out to all the antique stores. Support the industry. Best of all, love what you do. And I appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. That was another episode of The Antique Show and was brought to you by Antique Education, Learn Antiques and Scammel Auctions. Recorded in The Antique Show studios in The Antique Education headquarters in Grange, South Australia. Copyright 2019.